Well, good morning. It is good to be gathered with you here this morning as we come together to, to worship and to fellowship together and to be gathered together as God's people in, in this place. Try that. I think it's my pocket. I think we're good. Right, so if you're new or visiting, my name's Tim. I'm the, I'm the uh, senior pastor at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and I make microphones do bad things. And, <laughs> but we're, we're glad that you're here with us. If you are new or you're visiting, and you'd like to communicate anything with the church, there's a connect card on the seat in front of you. We'd like to we'd invite you to, to fill that out and to place it in the wooden box that's on the back wall on your way out. This morning, those Wooden boxes are also where uh, tithes and offerings can be placed if you want to give what we're doing here um, at the church. So just a couple of announcements to bring to your attention this morning. So kind of just lay out the schedule for this morning for you. So following the service, we'd invite you to head downstairs to have coffee and snacks and treats with us. And then at 10.30, Children's Sunday School will start downstairs, and we will start our class called Habits of the Household over in the library the class focused on like, how do we build habits in our household that point kids toward Jesus. And then at 1045, there will be a, a sermon discussion in here led by Eric Gustafson. He'll be in here leading that conversation. We invite you to be part of any one of those things after the service um, and just spend time with us. A couple of announcements of things coming up. So next Sunday from 2 to 4, we'll have a, a baby shower for, for Cammie. Um, coming up, and so we invite you to come be a part of that. There's more information in your bulletin about that. And then on February 3rd, there's a men's conference uh, called No Regrets that's being hosted, or a live stream being hosted by Faith Church in Woodruff, and so we will take the, the church van out there for men, and so if you're interested in that, there's again more information about that in your bulletin. And then coming up on February 16th, have a, a movie night here. We're going to be sponsored by Fun Club and uh, targeted toward kind of family, but it's, all of you are invited to be a part of that. So we'll serve dinner here at 6 o'clock, and then the movie will start at, at 6.30. So we invite you to be, come and join us for that as well. So if you've been, been doing the fighter versus scripture memory with us, last week's verse with, with John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And next week's verse, the verse memorizing for the coming week is 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 through 17. Um, it's up there, it's a longer one, but you can do it. We believe in you. You got it. Yeah. As we now kind of transition and focus our minds and head into this, this moment of silence, would you just take a moment to, to be quiet, fix your mind on on God and who he is and what we're doing here as we gather together to worship. So we have a moment of silence together.
Father, we thank you for this time to, to gather and to worship. And as we sing now, would the words that leave our mouth not just be words that we say or we sing, but would they be genuine praise to you, genuine overflow of our hearts. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to transition now into a time of praising God through singing. And so, as we did, would you stand and read responsibly, responsibly with me these words that call us to worship. Let us worship God, our light and our salvation. We desire to live in God's house and to seek God in his holy temple. Let us worship God in spirit and in truth. Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil why we're made. Come set our hearts ablaze with hope like wildfire in our very souls. Holy Spirit, come invade us now. We are your church. We need your power in us. 
you'll, you'll hear in the, in the sermon shortly, like I've become convinced recently of just like really the importance of, of confessing our sins, right? Not in the traditional Catholic sense of going in a booth and, and confessing your sins to, to a priest who can offer absolution, but in the sense that it's important to be honest about where we are. And in the sermon, I'm going to urge you to find people who you can trust to confess sins to. I think it's also good for us uh, that the family of people following Jesus together for us to confess sins in a, in a public setting. You can't grasp how, how good Jesus is and how, the, how good the forgiveness of sins he offered is unless and until we grasp how broken and sinful we are. So to help us in that, this morning I'm going to read a, a prayer of a confession that will be up on the screen. You don't have to read it out loud, but I just have it on the screen for you to process it. And at the end of that prayer, I'm going to give you a few moments to just sit and quietly confess any sins. You need to confess yourself to God. Did you pray this in your mind with me? Holy and merciful God, in your presence we confess our sinfulness, our shortcomings, and our offenses against you. You alone know how often we have sinned in wandering from your ways and wasting your gifts in forgetting your love. Have mercy on us, O Lord, for we are ashamed and sorry for all we have done to displease you. Forgive our sins and help us live in your light and walk in your ways. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen. Give you a few moments to quietly confess in your own minds and hearts. having confessed our sins, to then hear these words of assurance from the psalmist. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, so that you may be revered. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is great power to redeem. It is he who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. Father, we, we thank you that though we are sinful, though we have much to confess because of Jesus and his death on our behalf, we can be confident that we are forgiven. Thank you. We pray to you for all that you've done for us in Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In light of that assurance of our forgiveness, let's continue to rejoice and sing together. Would you stand as we continue in worship this morning?
Jesus Christ, my living.
Today's scripture reading is from Galatians 5, 16 through 26. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation of the law of Moses. When you follow your, follow your desires of your sinful natures, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful natures to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or to be jealous of one another. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would teach us through it now, that you would, through it, power, transform us more and more into the image of Jesus. We would follow you and live the life you've called us to live more fully because of what we hear now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Kids in 4K through second grade, the option right now of heading down to the children's church. So this, the past week we saw kind of the kickoff, right, of, of a new election cycle, okay, the Iowa caucuses taking place, and, and because it's a presidential election year, it's a, the vast majority of media coverage around the elections is going to be on the presidential election, and then to a lesser extent, maybe on Senate seats and House representative elections. And we'll hear candidates for those positions saying all kinds of terrible things about one another. We'll hear all kinds of talk about battleground states and close races and pundits on TV will make it sound like the future of humanity hinges on who wins this election or that election. Right, so those are the elections we'll focus on. Right? Yet there's this whole other set of elections that, that arguably have like, just a bigger, even a bigger impact on your day-to-day -day life than those elections. And we pay almost no attention to, to those elections, and that's like state and local elections. I know like a couple of you right now are saying like, oh, I pay attention. I'm like, I'm like that's great, I'm glad, I'm happy for you, that's good, but like, you're not normal, right? Like, no one pays attention to like local elections. In fact, voter turnout in most local elections when it's only local issues on the ballot is less than 30%. In some, especially metropolitan areas, voter turnout is under 10% when it's only local elections. 
And that sounds bad, right? Because those elections determine what is taught in our schools and what infrastructure projects get done in our town or our city and who our local judges are and who is running the sheriff's department and all these things. So it sounds bad that we don't pay attention, and it is, right? But there's an even bigger problem at play, which is that in many of those elections, the voters don't turn out because they don't really have a choice. According to BallotReady.com, nearly, I can't read it, but it says nearly 70% of elections went uncontested in 2022. And that was the midterm year when there were Senate and House races on the ballot. But when you look at specific local races, the numbers are even worse. According to BallotReady, 91% of regional district attorney positions were uncontested in 2022. 85% of all district and circuit judge positions were uncontested. There's only one candidate on the ballot. And so even if you deeply dislike the candidate, there's very little reason to fight against them. Or there's no reason to show up and vote for them, because there's no alternative. Unopposed political candidates are going to prevail no matter what you do. There's nothing to fight against them. And the passage we heard from, from Galatians, Paul said there's a, a similar parallel in, in the Christian life, right, in all of life. Right? He said that without Jesus, the only candidate to guide our actions is our sinful desires. Right? That there is an election going on in our heart to decide what's going to guide our decision-making. Right? But without Jesus... Our sinful nature is the only name on the ballot. So even if you don't like your sinful tendencies, even if you don't want to sin, without another name on the ballot, sin will inevitably win. And therefore, without Jesus, we can't help but sin and give in to sin over and over and over again. It's the only choice available to us. But when we trust in Jesus... And then we supernaturally receive the Holy Spirit, and He gives us desires that are opposite of our, our sinful desire. So that now we have these new desires, and then we now have a choice. And so Paul starts this passage by saying, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. That's really like the command that hangs over this entire passage, really over all of life. Right? That's a good one-sentence summary for what the Christian life should look like. The perfect life, the, the God-honoring life, is the Holy Spirit-led life. And that may seem like a pretty straightforward statement, but that straightforward statement can then lend itself to an important misunderstanding. It's like, what does it actually look like to, to let the Holy Spirit guide your lives? And some people think, like mistakenly, that if I'm really believing in Jesus, if I really have received the Holy Spirit, then even the desire to sin will disappear from my life. But what we see in this passage, that the, that the, the Spirit-guided life, is not a life that is suddenly free from all sinful desires, but a life where we now have the ability to follow the Spirit's leading. We see this that Paul continues in verse 16. Right? So after saying, let the Holy Spirit guide your life, he continues by saying, then you won't be doing what the sinful nature craves. He doesn't say, 
Right? Then the sinful nature cravings will go away. He says, when your Holy Spirit guides your life, then you won't be doing what the nature craved, but it's still there. Paul says in verse 17, the sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But here's the point. As followers of Jesus, we still have the old sinful nature at work in us. That sinful nature is still fighting for our attention. So we shouldn't be surprised by the existence of, of persistent sinful desires in our lives. The Holy Spirit God life is not one where we're suddenly free of all sinful desires. I mean, often it seems like Christians beat themselves up, not for their sin itself, but for the existence of even the temptation to sin. There, there are two ways to look at this. There's good news and there's bad news. The bad news is no matter how advanced, no how far along you get in the Christian life, you'll never escape the need to fight against sinful desires in your life. To always be there. It is a fight that will rage inside of you until the day you die. Some temptations may become less over time. We may become better at winning the fight. But the Holy Spirit and our sinful desire will constantly be fighting in us as long as we live. So that's the bad news about our persistent sinful desires. They'll never go away in this life. But the good news is that if you're here right now, and you're, you're feeling like a failure, you're feeling burdened because there's sinful desires in your life that just won't go away, like you don't have to feel that way. The, the presence of persistent, ongoing sinful desires does not make you a second-class Christian. It doesn't make you a failure. It makes you normal. There's a, a difference between the temptation to sin and actually sinning. I know this because in Hebrew 4.15 we read, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet, he did not sin. There's a difference between temptation to sin and sin itself. And yet there's, there's this feeling that I fear many of us have, which, means, which says in our heads, like, if I'm a good Christian, right, if, I'm a, if I'm a varsity level Christian, then not only will I not sin, but I won't even have temptations to sin. But look what Paul says in Romans 6. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Not don't have sinful desires, but don't give in to sinful desires. And here's why all this matters. When we hide the fact, because we feel guilty about it, that we're, we hide the fact that we're battling temptation to sin. When we act like we don't have persistent sinful desires, we are in fact lying. For, for Christians to spend time together and not acknowledge areas in our lives where our sinful cravings are fighting 
for our attention the hardest, to do a disservice to one another. Then we, then we make others who are struggling against temptation feel isolated and alone. And when we can't even confess our, our sinful desire to one another, then what hope do we have of actually confessing sin? Because we will still sin. Look at verse 17. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you are not free to carry out your good intentions. Like you're not free to carry out your good intentions. The implication being that there are times that even though you want to do the right thing, we will, because of sin fighting inside of us, choose to gratify our sinful desires instead. Instead, We will all still sin. There are times that even as Christians, our, our sinful desires will win. And the good news is that Jesus, by his death on the cross, has already paid the penalty for those sins. And the Bible calls us, invites us then to respond to our sin by stripping sin of its power by confessing our sins to one another. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The important word there is each other. I think sometimes we think, like, well, as long as I've confessed my sins to God, then I'm good. Like, I don't need to confess anyone else. But James said, confess your sins to one another. In an article for the Gospel Coalition called Walking in the Light, How God Uses Our Confession to Others, Garrett Kell writes this. He says, I remember wanting to be free by any means besides complete honesty. I fought it with every excuse imaginable. I thought, God, I've confessed everything to you. You know I love you. I'll never do it again. But if I do, then I'll confess to someone else. Sin assured us that we are safe behind the mask of lies. But we are not. We scramble to disconnect being honest with God about our sin from the need to be honest with others too. And in that dark void, we change. We start to tell lies. And eventually we believe them. We resist the Spirit's nudges and quench His convicting voice. Slowly, living with hidden lies becomes normal. Confessing sin to another believer ripped off the mask of hypocrisy so we can breathe the air of honesty. It enlivens our heart to feel again, and it removes the veil so we can see Christ afresh. Confession humbles us, which by nature uproots the pride that keeps immorality alive and attractive to our soul. And later in the same article, he encourages his reader not only to confess their sins, but to confess their temptations. He writes, Temptation is not sin, but it is dangerous. Learning to reach out to close friends when you're tempted is an essential part of resisting. Secrecy strengthens sin. Light saps it. Keeping your struggle quiet can seem attractive, since it lets you nibble a little longer before you flee. But sin is never satisfied. If you feed it, it only grows stronger. If you don't want to fall off sin's cliff, don't walk along temptation's edge. 
So I say this and I read this to encourage us to be people who confess sin. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's scary. Yes, it's deeply humbling. But if we really believe the gospel, if we really believe that Jesus died on the cross, shed his blood for our sins, all of them, past, present, and future, if we really believe they're paid for, if we really believe that if Paul says elsewhere, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then confession of sin should not bring shame. Confession of sin should not make us feel burdened or afraid. If we really believe the gospel that Jesus died for our sins, then confession brings freedom and healing. Confession strips sin of its power. Now that doesn't mean we should all go shout our sins from the rooftop for everyone to, to know and to hear. Probably not wise to do that. But you should like find someone or a couple of people you trust and, and share your temptations and your sins with them. Like one of the roadblocks we often put up to doing this is we, we fear that confession of sin will make others look down on us. I can't believe they would do that. I can't believe they would be tempted to do that. Like They're going to judge me and, and look down on me because of what I've done. But if we rightly understand what Jesus is all about, and actually, I think confession does the opposite. It doesn't push people away. It invites people in. The German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was eventually killed by, by the Nazi for resisting Hitler, he, he created this illegal Christian community inside of Germany under Hitler. And this community was known for its, for its deep fellowship and closeness with one another. And she wrote a book about how to achieve this closeness and what this closeness looks like in a book called Life Together. And in that book, he says that confession is one of the keys to building this kind of community. He says this, In confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The confession of sin, done in light of the fact that we are loved and forgiven by Jesus, not only strips sin of its power, and not only brings healing and freedom, but confession, rightly understood, actually draws us into deeper community and, and relationship with one another, which is something we, we desperately need. Recent studies have shown that 60% of Americans report feeling lonely on a regular basis. The number has been steadily increasing since the 70s and, and rapidly increasing since the advent of social media. And there are all kinds of reasons for this. 
but one of the ones, major ones seem to be the internet and, and social media in particular. Right? Because social media have made it incredibly easy to be seen without being truly known. We can put a, a carefully curated version of ourselves online, which allows others to see us and for them to think they know us. Right? But deep down, we know they don't really know us. Because we're not going to share our deepest hurt and our shames and our sins on the internet. Nor should we. So with social media, we've, we've traded being known for being seen. They're not the same thing. Being seen is not an adequate solution to the problem of loneliness. And as Bonhoeffer said, like, in loneliness, sin thrives. Only being truly known actually helps us no longer feel lonely. And we'll only be, feel truly known when we're free to confess our sins to one another. So again, I just urge us, like, let's be a church that confesses sin. If you're, you're here and there's been something that's been weighing on you or some temptation you've been fighting or some sinful desire you've been indulging, Find a trusted person that you can confess to. I'm happy to be that person. If you don't have somebody you can go to, like I will not judge. Just find someone to confess to. Like let that, that burden be lifted from you. Strip sin of its power. Like step into deep relationship and true community with others by, by being truly known. But of course, if we're going to be a church that embraces a culture of confession, then we also need to be a church that's full of people who are trustworthy to be confessed to. We need to be people who, when someone confesses sin to us, doesn't judge them, either out loud or secretly. We need to be people who are prepared to, to speak the truth of the gospel and forgiveness in Jesus over people. We don't excuse or downplay sin. We should be people who assure others of, of the forgiveness that's available to them through Jesus. We should be people who are, who are willing to see others and treat others as God sees them, which means seeing them as completely and fully forgiven in Christ. We are people who have received grace and forgiveness for all the times we've given in to our sinful desires. We want to be people who are quick to show grace to others when they confess their sins to us. And all this leads to the question. Right, if the Christian life is not one where we no longer face sin or face temptation, then what changes when we become a Christian? What is different about the Christian life versus the non-Christian life? And Paul tells us that in verses 17 and 18. In verse 17 he says, And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. And in verse 18 he says, But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. So when we 
trust in Jesus, and we decide to follow Jesus. And the Holy Spirit supernaturally comes, and he lives inside of us. Back in verse 14, chapter 3, Paul put it this way. Through Christ Jesus, God had blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised Abraham, so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. So we have faith in Jesus. We receive the promised Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit living in us does many things, but Paul highlights two of them here in this passage. First, the the Holy Spirit directs us. He he points our heart in a Godward direction. And then second, he gives us new desires. The Holy Spirit comes and he, he lives in us. We are no longer slaves to sin. We now have the choice between our sinful desires, and our Holy Spirit-given desires. Not only does the Holy Spirit give us those new desires, but He also directs our heart towards choosing those desires. This is not an overpowering direction. We can, can and at times, still will choose our sinful desires. But without the Spirit, we won't even have these new desires. So the key to to Christian living then, to holy living. It's not so much that we muster up enough internal willpower to, to force ourselves to choose to do good, even though we want to choose sin. The key to holy living, the key to Christian living, is being attentive to the Holy Spirit's direction. The Holy Spirit directs us to choose these holy forgiven desires, we should be attentive to that direction. But that only pushes the question a little bit further down the road. Then the, then the question simply becomes, well, how do I make sure I'm being attentive to the Holy Spirit's direction? If I want to live a God-honoring life, if I want to live a life directed by the Spirit, how can I make sure I'm hearing and sensitive to the Spirit's direction? And in answer to that question, the Bible gives us some guidance. One of the key ways that the, the Bible calls us to be attentive to the Holy Spirit's leading is by guarding our minds. Like what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 8. He says, Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit Think about things that please the Spirit. So, letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. So the things that your mind dwells on impact how attuned you are to the Spirit. Letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Later in Romans, Paul says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing, what? Changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. When our mind, the way we think is transformed, when we're thinking about godly things, then we will know God's will. We will know what is good and pleasing and perfect. We will be attuned to the direction the Holy Spirit is pointing us. So the key then, 
key question you have to ask yourself right, is, is what are you thinking about? Where does your mind dwell? Like when you have a, a quiet moment, when you're falling asleep at night, when you're in the shower, like where does your mind wander to? And a huge factor that's going to determine our answer to that question is, what are we putting into our minds? What are we watching? What are we listening to? What are we reading? Who are we talking to? What websites are we browsing? What feeds are we scrolling? And do these things point our mind to the things of the Spirit or towards sinful desires? I've tried really hard the past couple years not to care quite as much about the Packers. Like, like all season this season. Like, I've only watched bits and pieces of games here and there, and then I've watched highlights when they've won, but I've really tried not to care as much as I used to in the past. But last night, <laughs> after the Dallas game went so well, I was sucked in. So I sent, I sent my family this, this message. It says, the first time all year I've let myself care enough to put on Packers gear. This should be good for my emotions. Like, I knew it was coming. Like, I said it. This should be good for my emotions, right? And I was being sarcastic. Like, I knew it was going to happen. And yet, despite my expectations of my heart being broken, like, that game was even more painful than I could have imagined, right? than I was prepared for. Right? And so when the game ended, right? even though the game ended, like, way, way past my normal bedtime, didn't go to bed. Instead, I, I got up and I, and I worked on, on touching up this sermon and adding this story. Because right? <laughs> I knew, right, if I tried to sleep immediately after that game, like, I would have just dwelled on and relived every single missed opportunity. And there were plenty to dwell on. And it would not have been good. Like, I would never have fallen asleep. My mind was filled with thoughts of that game. Right? If I hadn't watched the game, if I had just seen the final score, like, yeah, I would have been bummed out, but it wouldn't have impacted the way I thought nearly as much. It wouldn't have dwelled in my mind nearly as much. And the point of this story is not that watching sports is inherently good or bad, but it does highlight right, like that how what we consume, what we watch, what we put into our minds will unavoidably impact what we think about in quiet moments. I could not have fallen asleep right after that game because my mind would just dwell on it because I had taken that content in. And so, if we want to think about things that please the Spirit, then we need to make sure that the content we consume is, is content that will cause our mind to think about things of the Spirit. We need to put content in that is valuable and good. That's why Bible reading is so important. That's one of the reasons why we're promoting scripture memory through fighter verses this year. It gives your mind somewhere to go, something to think about, something to dwell on. That's why prayer is so important. It, it focuses your mind on God. That's why, in part, why we've started having a, a time of silence at the start of our services. To give us time to intentionally set our mind on the things of God. So why what you read matters, and what you watch matters, and what you scroll matters. 
says, why who you talk to matters. If you choose conversation partner, just because you're looking for the best gossip or you're looking for the best stories of questionable morality, it's not going to help your mind think about the things that please the Spirit. In another of his letters, Paul says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. We want to be attuned to the guiding of the Holy Spirit. If we want to be better able to listen to where the Spirit's leading us, then we should think about things and fill our minds with things that are excellent and worthy of praise. There's a a phenomenon in, in video gaming called the Tetris effect, which is when you've played a game like Tetris so much that like, even when you close your eyes to sleep at night, you keep seeing the game play out, right? You see, keep seeing the blocks fall. Keep seeing the block dropping. You're playing the game even in your, with your eye closed, the game turned off. You're still playing the game in your mind. What we fill our mind with impacts what our minds naturally dwell on and think about. So let us be people who fill our minds with what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely admirable and excellent and worthy of praise. Fill our minds with those things. Set our minds on those things. And the final outcome of all of this, if you are guided by the Spirit, if we are putting sin to death, we are confessing sin, we're following our Holy Spirit given desires, the net outcome is that we bear spiritual fruit. If we follow the Spirit's guiding, we unsurprisingly, we'll begin to look like the kinds of people God wants us to be. We'll begin to look like Jesus. Paul described that person in verses 22 and 23. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. The Holy Spirit guided person what Paul called it to, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. The Holy Spirit guided person will be loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle and self-controlled. Here's the thing about this verse. Important to note that the word fruit, both in English and in Greek, is, is singular. It's one fruit. It's not that love is a fruit and joy is a fruit and peace is a fruit, etc., It's one fruit. We often miss that. I used to teach in a Christian school, and it was not uncommon for a teacher to do end-of-the-year awards, and they would give awards, some of them, like this. The Fruits of the Spirit Classroom Award. When you did this, you you would give the happy kid the joy award. And you'd give the nice kid the kindness award, and you'd you'd give the well-behaved kid the self-control award, etc. But I worked at a, a camp one summer where they did it for staff, and I received the Patience Award. But here's the thing. I received the Patience Award not primarily because the Spirit was doing a powerful work in me to make me patient. Like I got that award because I'm a naturally patient person. 
and natural dispositions and gifts and talents are not the same thing as the fruit of the Spirit. And because fruit is singular in this passage, if the Holy Spirit is truly producing fruit in our lives, then we'll be growing in, in all these areas. Not just showing off the areas we're naturally good at. And look, like if you've given a word like this, I'm not trying to guilt you, but I'm just trying to, just trying to highlight how it's kind of automatic in our minds to add an S to the end of fruits when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. But here's why it matters. Because the most evident sign of the Holy Spirit working in me is not that I'm patient. People would have called me patient before I knew Jesus, before I had the Holy Spirit. It's kind of how I am, right? at least outwardly, even if inside I'm seething. I, I look patient. I won't say I am patient. But, but like the most evident sign of the Holy Spirit working in me from, from my perspective it's the way I've, I've grown, not in patience, but in, in self-control. Especially, like, around food consumption and time usage. Like, those have never been strengths of mine, especially in my younger years. But by the power of the Spirit, I've, I've grown in those areas. Like, and the thing is, right, if you, you graded me from the outside perspective, you just graded me objectively on a scale from 1 to 10, you probably, from an outside perspective, still even now rate me higher in patience than in self-control. Like, like it's like a four in patience and a three in self-control. Right? Right? But the work that the Spirit has done in my life has been far more drastic in the area of self-control. Because fruit is singular, we should expect the Spirit to grow us in all these areas, not just one or two that we like. Not just one or two that we're good at, right? We grow in all the areas, and the, the most evident sign of the Spirit working in you is your growth in the areas you're weakest in. The fruit of the Spirit, then, is, is not a recipe for how to earn God's favor and go to heaven someday. The fruit of the Spirit is a sign that you've already trusted Jesus, and the Spirit is in you, doing a supernatural work in you to make you more like Jesus in ways that you couldn't do on your own. In verse 24, I don't have a slide for it, but you can look in your bulletin or in your Bible. Paul says this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified him there. Those who belong to Christ Jesus. So the first step in all of this is belonging to Jesus, following Jesus. Trusting that Jesus, through his death, has died for your sins. Apart from that, none of this other stuff matters. You can try to will yourself for a while to act like you have the fruit of the Spirit, but it won't matter apart from Jesus. Through Jesus that we receive the Spirit, who then begins to do all this work in our lives to give us new desires and to direct us towards those desires and to grow the fruit of the Spirit in us. It's through that Spirit, not through our own willpower that any of that happens. Without the Spirit, our sinful desire running unopposed will win the election of our hearts. So if you're here, and you're fighting sin, and you're feeling burdened by sin, and you feel like you can't win against sin, 
If you've never trusted Jesus, that's step one. I don't have five self-help tips for how to defeat sin. Like Trusting Jesus is first and foremost. If you're here and never trusted Jesus, I urge you to do that. That's where all this starts. And for those of us who already belong to Jesus, then Paul sums up everything he's saying in the passage in verse 25 when he says this. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. That's our call. We are living by the Spirit. We've trusted in Jesus. We are living by the Spirit. We have life because of the Spirit. But we don't always follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. And so when we fail, when we fail to follow the Spirit's leading, would we be quick to confess and to repent of our failures, to ask God's help to direct us back to following the Spirit's leading? Would we be people who fix our minds on on the things of the Spirit so we can be better attuned to the Spirit's guidance in our lives? Would we be people who are in line, walking with the Spirit, letting our life be guided by the Spirit. What do we do that? We fix our minds on things that are good and excellent and worthy of praise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who works in us who convicts us of our sin, who invites us to confession and repentance. We thank you that you sent Jesus first to die for us. Then after Jesus ascended, you sent your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts to move us to live lives that are glorifying to you, to give us new desires to grow the fruit of the Spirit in us. Shall we be people who fight sin in our lives? Will we fight to follow the Spirit leading and not the leading of our sinful desires? Will we be people who when we fail in that, we'd be quick to confess and to receive words of grace from one another. We'd be quick to remind one another that we've been forgiven by Jesus. And we'd be people who fix our minds and fill our minds on those things that point us towards the Spirit and His good gifts. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. As you leave here this morning, would you go letting your life be guided by the Spirit? You are dismissed.